0: Hey, hello everybody and welcome back to What Would The Smart Party Do? This time it will be look back into yesteryear like an archaeologist unearthing gaming gold or maybe fool's gold from magazines and such like that. With me, as usual, is my good friend Baz. How are you doing Baz?
1: Oh, I'm very good and I appreciate the uh, the nod to fool's gold. That'll put a timestamp on it. That <laughs> indeed. <laughs> Get your old albums out
0: and check out which number that is. And uh, of course, as we look back in time, it behooves us to get an expert in on the, the olden days of role-playing games. Uh, Mr Chris Hart, Dirk the Dice from the Grog No Files podcast. How are you doing, Dick?
2: I'm Great, thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, good to get back into my time machine. Mind you, I spend most of my time in the 80s, so this is uh, going forward in time for me, yeah. I think, this.
0: We're meeting in the middle. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You all of this was only a couple of weeks ago anyway, so it's, it not, much like of, it. it's not much of a dig back in the time, is it?
0: Not at all. So uh, all of us have been kind of like digging out, going to the loft or other places where we might have secreted away magazines and pulled them out and started a, a flick through and stuff like that. They are curious objects now, looking back, as Baz has just mentioned there, it sounds like the 90s to us is probably a couple of weeks ago, but in reality is decades ago. So... Um, it, it was quite an eye-opener for me just looking at magazines and looking at what the adverts are like, for example, or State of the Industry posts. All that seems very strange now. I don't know how you guys just found the initial just looking at things like hand-drawn adverts or things with fax numbers on, or you know full-page adverts from Wizards of the Coast saying, this is our new helpline number, please ring us and contact us with your problems. Which I can't imagine any company doing in today's market. You, you try and drive people away from phoning up. But that was like, I think they really, they're just dated just by looking at the pages, aren't they? They're a whole different animal than what someone would recognise if they got into the, the hobby in the last sort of five or 10
1: years. Yeah, it is. It's, um, the, the 80s has their own visual aesthetic and it can be satirised, can't it? And you'd have like side ponytails and neon crop tops and that kind of stuff. I always thought the 90s was kind of like a bit almost generic. It had its like music fashions and that kind of stuff, obviously. But I didn't realize how graphically um, distinct it is. And it is, but only when you look back, having lived through it, it just seemed all modern and kind of glamorous. And it's just blended into 2020, 2021, but not at all. As a snapshot, I sort of looked back through the first 10 issues of Valkyrie magazine, which is mid 90s, exact midpoint, in fact. And it just could not have been published at any other time it's it's absolutely the zeitgeist of of what things just looked like then and the world that we lived in um it doesn't take much you know to, to close the eyes and I could get myself straight back into the WH Smith where I picked it up from and and go and eat the sandwich in the park where I read it and and that kind of stuff okay it snaps me right back it's just astonishing to think it's more than 25 years ago a quarter of a century you know you think yeah. of, you go back in the other direction from mid 90s so to go back 25 years you'd be in 1970 and the Beatles were still around that's just madness to think of time going in those two directions at the same time it's a long time ago
0: mm. I can only apologise to our listeners who are now envisioning Baz and a side ponytail and neon crop up, but that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's something you'll have to put up with the
1: money I'd pay to be able to have a ponytail any orientation <laughs>
0: <laughs> at least you can always have a crop top so I uh, uh, Derek, I guess I was looking at uh, Valkyries and stuff like that, magazines of probably the 90s, but I guess that was when you were in the deep freeze. So so maybe you've got... Did you read magazines then, or have you got articles from before or after, or, or what's your view of that sort of period?
2: Well, I've been uh, collecting them uh, recently because I've started a new endeavour where I'm tweeting every day, uh, something from my library so I, I decided I, I had insomnia at the start of the year and I thought you know it'd be a good thing to just uh, take a picture and tweet every day and then I realized I don't even know I've got 365 things in my library <laughs> Um so over the last uh, few weeks I've been from eBay looking at stuff from the 90s because it is the lost decade for me. I stopped playing at around 1989. We did have a a game of Call of Cthulhu on election night of 1992, um, but the, there was more horrors that went on that night. <laughs> that <we'd, laughs> but I had no involvement in the hobby at all, and I just assumed that it had finished. I just assumed <laughs> that it, you know people were no longer playing. I, you know, I'm that solipsistic thinking that the world rolls me. Ro- ro- I know part of it, so it must have stopped in 1989. Um, So it's been great to look at these artefacts, look at these magazines that I've picked up. And I've picked up several. So uh, The Lost Province, uh, Arcane. uh, There's this uh, one from uh, Steve Jackson, Pyramid. And uh, all all these games I was looking, trying to piece together what was going on. Because I've got some strange prejudices about the 90s that I've picked up since I've got back into it that I want to try and dispel, and that's why I'm great. I'm glad that you're here because you live through it. It's like I've got the artefacts, I've got things, but I've got the primary sources here. I can check check the how authentic these magazines actually are.
1: <laughs> the 90s was um, was like major peak gaming for me in my life, actually. Yeah. It's where, it's where Gaz and I, we met in the 90s, I think, didn't we? Yeah. And, um, I mean, to cut a long story short, I attended university solely to go to a role-playing games club. I mean, I did A-levels and everything as a mature student just to get in on the last year of student grants just so I could play role-playing games for three years. And um, that I had to do a law degree on the side, but really I was playing Shadowrun most of the time in the 90s (laughs) or Hammer Fantasy (laughs) role-play. So the 90s was peak gaming for me, and I I look back on it with a lot of fondness. Having looked back through some of the artefacts of it, that fondness has been tempered by the reality (laughs) of what was actually happening. But uh, for me, the 90s was a, was a really interesting decade um, coming out of the 80s. And I, I think, you know, old school probably stops in the 80s, doesn't it? Probably the mid 80s, if we're realistic. And then there was that period where D&D wasn't published by Wizards of the Coast. In fact, D&D wasn't even that big a deal in the 90s. It was it was a decade without much influence from, from what is now seen as this absolute behemoth. It wasn't there. It was on its uppers. Um, and a lot of other stuff sort of swam into that space. And it was it was certainly a diverse decade. So th- there'll be a lot to cover, I think.
0: Yeah, there's, there's some... There was definitely a like, gaming golden period for, for me as well, like you say, Buzz, because for several years of it, I was at university, so I had lots of free time. Mm. And uh, a role-playing club that we could... I revived, actually, when I got there, because it, um, it had disappeared and all that was left was a box of games stuffed away somewhere in the student union. So I just requested to to start up the role-playing society again. And uh, we had some funds for photocopying, so you could get car- you could make character sheets and stuff. We had a box of games and a budget of, like, whatever it was, £100 a year, so we could buy the odd game, so that we could uh, donate it to the club and play it, and stuff like that, along with all the free time we had. So it was a, a perfect storm of money and opportunity, <laughs> which led to quite a lot of gaming, actually. Mm. Although a lot of role-playing stuff was going into shops and seeing what was there or buying these sort of magazines or fanzines to find out what was going on because there's no real prevalent internet so you don't have the sort of uh, saturation that you do now where there's just like so many games and things and people talking about constantly every minute of every day but then you kind of had to go out and hunt for them and work out if there was a new one and would it be any good or not and is it worth me spending some money by writing a physical check and sending it in the post to a PO box and hoping a book comes back the other way and stuff like that.
2: So the fact that there are so many magazines, like you say, Baz, you picked up yours in a newsagent, so it's Mm -hmm. clearly getting widespread mainstream distribution. Does that reflect the popularity of the games at the time, or does that say more about the magazine industry in the 90s, because it was a bit of a consumer boom in the 90s, wasn't it? And mm. magazines did very well. And, you know, the distribution improved and advertising revenue, that kind of thing. And as you, you were saying, there's a certain style from the page maker aesthetic where desktop publishing had, had come out and everybody was getting familiar with it. So it was very easy for a semi-pro magazine to look and feel like something more special. So is it... it, it the, nineties gaming, was it um, a kind of a mainstream activity, or it, was it just that the magazines were doing very well and they just uh, were more apparent?
1: I don't think it was mainstream at all. It was look, people have talked about the death of the hobby for a very, very long time, and I think those conversations started in the nineties. I mean, the, your prime example—you left the hobby in nineteen eighty nine, and I don't think you were alone in doing that at all. The nineties was a good time to be a gamer. Because you felt like you could get your arms around the entire community, you could you could literally have every game that was published, and, and quite a few were published. Don't get me wrong, but you could know everyone. You could go to Gen Cons; they were still bubbling along, and you could genuinely know everybody in the UK who was playing playing role playing games, probably, or know someone who knew someone who knew someone. And um, and I think the, the role playing industry was really having a tough time. TSR was a prime example of it, and at the end of the decade, they got bought out by. Wizards of the Coast who used to publish supplements for D and D. You know, magic was the big thing that came along. Magic was absolutely massive, and at the mid nineties, there were still oh god, we were throwing these cards away, weren't we, Gaz? Thinking, mm, regrettably, you know, what, what we we're
0: thinking? throwing a couple of grand in the bin is what we were doing.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, leafing through my magazine and I find I've, I've actually still got a promo card for the Sim City card game in there. <laughs> so card gaming was, was really, really booming. Video gaming was booming massively as well, really starting to come into its own. I think there was probably a sense that, that role-playing games were going to you know, just ebb away to be these quite niche things. Vampire and White Wolf put the lie to all of that. That became quite mainstream and brought a lot of new people into, into the hobby uh, and a much more diverse crowd as well. So it was definitely... Definitely felt. I don't know. I thought the idea of going back into dungeons and stuff was probably over in the nineties. That kind of gaming had definitely was was on its knees. Um, I think it's it's massively come back since, but the nineties wasn't about that style of game at all because it wouldn't have been called old old school at the time either. It was recent school, wasn't it? So it didn't have any of the massive amount of nostalgia, and there was no hankering to go back to the early days because the early days weren't that far, weren't that long ago. so yeah, yeah I, and, I, and I think although everything was in the newsagents, and you could buy, you know, you could always buy Dragon Warriors in the newsagent, couldn't you? But there were quite a few magazines just knocking around, and W. H. Smith certainly had that huge sort of specialist wall, didn't it? You could buy a, you could buy magazines on every type of train or gun or steamboat, you know. They had all of those kind of things going on, and I think there was a decent market in there for magazines. People still bought them. People still got on trains and. Bought magazines and 20 Bensons, and, and that was the thing. And it, it isn't now, but that but that was the community, I think. You know, the letters page and the idea of some kind of level of home publishing. Because Valkyrie certainly looks home published when you look at it now. <laughs> Arcane was kind of like the posh boy on the block. Very glamorous. You know, very, very glamorous and glitzy. Not a huge amount of content.
2: I, when I um, left college at the start of the '90s, there was this sense that desktop publishing and uh, cheap printing that everybody would have their own fanzine. Hmm. I've got um, I've got this here fact sheet five, which wow. was produced by uh, Mike Gundeloy, and he uh, produced a uh, fact sheet five every month, and it listed all the fanzines that were available. Hmm and he send off for the mail order and there's 10,000 listed just in the US alone. So it was a boom uh, time and I, I was really into it because I was at that time I was into uh, science fiction a small press publishing I was involved in that for uh, a short period of time. This uh, sense that um, you know this, this is going to be the new wave of uh, creativity that everybody would express themselves through magazines and in a sense it sort of has turned out like that, hasn't it? Because with the advent of the internet, people are self publishing and the self publishing and uh, the proliferation of different uh, narratives that are out there and different hobbies that are represented in very minute audiences. Dare I say it like podcasts mm-hmm. with very small but dedicated audiences uh, at listening. But when uh, the start of the 90s uh, froze, it was going to be through magazines, it was going to be magazines that were going to do it.
0: Yeah, and, and for other things that's how you how else do you find your audience? You know, you people did small press publishing a little bit as well, but like how do you get your game or fanzine whatever in front of people and it's only by word of mouth or if you put an advert in a magazine, But that, that's like there is no like we sort of forget a bit how ubiquitous the internet is and how easy it's to find other people like you no matter what fetish or hobby or whatever it is you can find other like minded people have always been there. But you can never reach them before, and uh, that, that's the thing. Magazines were basically the internet to a certain degree in terms of getting people together or providing a focal point. Uh, well,
1: so that, you that, could... that's why I went to university. To... Yeah. Sorry, yeah, to talk over you. I literally went to university in order to get a gaming group because I knew that they would have one.
2: I've I've got this quote here from uh, Arcane. 1996 uh, about the internet. It says, uh, the more we delve into it, the more we're convinced that the internet is the role-player's paradise. The incredible wealth of gaming information waiting on the other side of that modem is almost overwhelming.
0: <laughs> I know Valkyrie, for of the first few issues, had um, the net, you know, like a double page spread of what was happening in computer gaming and stuff. And I thought, that's... Surely they were computer magazines, but think about it, I'm not sure whether they were or not at that point or how how big they were. But even even in a role playing magazine they felt the need to sort of like put a couple of pages aside for this futuristic thing that might be might be where things are heading, I guess. But then mm-hmm. equally there's pages of adverts for miniatures and stuff like that and live action role playing and other things that I don't know seem I think some of these magazines when I look back seem quite disparate. That the internet and in the future has brought people together in some ways or provided opportunity for lots of little groups but um the old magazine to have to have a bit of everything to try and cater to everyone which i think might have meant that like a lot of it wasn't relevant to you i don't know that's how i felt looking back mm. at some of them now was like a lot of the pages i just thought i don't care about any of this like why is this in my role-playing magazine in my head when i think back to the other white drawers and other things it's all just full of like cool role-playing stuff and now i look at them and think there's just pages of dross in here. <laughs> Where's the good stuff about games? You know.
1: Yeah, they were packed out with um, uh, half the magazine of most magazines was reviews, and uh, and that's that's typical of magazines in the 90s. Generally, I think you know Q magazine in the 90s would be like your your Touchstone. I mean, uh, that's a, a thick publication at the best of times. Half of that was reviews. Um, and that's that's true of role playing mags as well, because again, to your point, guys, the only place you could get them, apart from like speaking to a mate, um, you wouldn't know that w- what was coming out, you wouldn't know what was being released. And the reviews, I think, were really quite important. And I ended up writing a lot of reviews for Valkyrie actually, because they had they had more stuff coming out, and reviewing stuff is quite difficult, but it's dead easy to get people to do it for you because you just give them the copy, the product for nothing. And uh, you know, when you're kind of product and money starved like like I was in the 90s, that was very, very easy. Yeah, I'll, I'll read anything. And you would read it as well, like cover to cover and try and play it and put your best into your 300 words on Sprawl Site 6 for Shadowrun. <laughs> 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 Labour really hard over whether it was a two- or a three-star publication thinking, oh, I better not mark it down too low because maybe they won't send me any more stuff. And I've got, like, you know, I've tapped into the faster mother load here. <laughs> it's drip, drip, drip of books coming. But yeah, but those reviews were fascinating. And looking back 25 years later, my eyes are still drawn to reviews. I like nothing more than reading a review of a book I've already got, strangely, mm. just mm. to find out if people agree with me. See if they're wrong. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the, the curious things, I think I was up to like Valkyrie 3, and there was a, um, a review of Nephilim. And I just mm. thought I've got déjà vu, but this doesn't feel right. And I check back again. It's in it's in, a, in episode one as well, or issue one. Like there's like a pre-release into they do for a full page, and then a couple of months later they do another full page review. And it's like what? That just seems I don't know. there feels like an element of padding to it or something. Like you know, one and well, what else did I find in there while well, I'm while well, i on uh, stuff? Like there's a guy who written, you know, more or less a full side of A4 in the letters page, but he was also one of the reviewers and had written an article. So I don't think you get to be on the Reader's List page if you're also like a contributor to the magazine as well. That just feels a bit weird. That doesn't feel like a different thing that you're tapping into. It just feels like you've got the same guy just wrote another 400 words or something.
1: This, this comes back to a, to a point that, that dirt was making earlier. When we look back at White Dwarf, I don't know how you guys felt, but I always knew the names in White Dwarf really, really well. You're Marcus Rowland, you're Film Masters, people like that. The idea of spending any time with those guys was like me asking to spend time with the Rolling Stones. They were my heroes and, you know, untouchable, unreachable. I wouldn't even have known where to start. Uh, at least I didn't move to Nottingham, although I did think about that too. But I just didn't... They were stellar. A pantheon of, of writers for White Dwarf. Well, as a writer for Valkyrie, I could tell you the pantheon was a whole lot less stellar. There was vanishingly few of them. There was basically Dave, his, his partner... <laughs> tina and uh and john was the third one and they and <laughs> who the four of us would often sit round a table in a pub in south end and, and i think this isn't quite the white dwarf vibe i was hoping for because the <laughs> 90s it had all shrunk in on itself They were lovely people don't get me wrong but it was much more kind of i don't know amateur i mean we there was pro zines knocking around but there was a handful of people involved. And I always got the impression you would have to fight hard to get your article published in White Dwarf. You didn't have to fight hard to get stuff published in in the other magazines of the 90s. The hobby was much, much smaller. And and if you were prolific in a Marcus Rowland type way, you could probably get your stuff into print no matter what it was, honestly. It was just smaller. um, And that made it kind of comfy and that everybody knew each other. And you know we, we would hang out at conventions and come around each other's houses and have a drink and stuff. So there's a certain level of bonhomie, but it was a bit ramshackle, if I'm honest.
2: Can I I put forward uh, some of my prejudices that I've got about 90s gaming that I've gathered? And they are prejudices, so they're not based on any evidence, and they're there to be debunked. All right. So my my first one, and it it taps into something you're just saying, is that it's very much about it was all kind of inward-looking, And using the smart party equation, there's a lot of talk about the role, you know, about characters and that kind of thing. There's stuff about the game and mechanics and rules and fussing over rules, but there doesn't seem to be much fun in the play. You don't see much evidence. Of people playing and enjoying it, and that, that it, it, you know, if, if you look back in those uh, white dwarf and the Imagine magazines, you can see evidence of um, the convention scene, and you can see some of that in Valkyrie. But some of the other stuff, it just seems very moribund and um, like on its way out. I think possibly uh,
0: it's an academic nature of it that. Um, what can I think? one of the the articles I was looking at or one of the reviews has a, towards the end it's sort of saying uh, and thank God we've got rid of uh, the what is an RPG section and you know which is a conversation that people still have today about whether they should include that in the game or not but this is something published in 1994 and you can tell at that point there's someone who's not wanting to sound hot or anything I don't imagine but just at that point where they're deep enough into the hobby that they don't think that we, as in the readership and other people who are interested in the games and want to talk about them, care about that anymore. We've kind of surpassed that. So I think there was kind of, within a small group, a kind of, and, and all hobbies get this. Like John Stallard talks about this, or used to when he was in Games Workshop and joined, and he's really into tanks. And it, it's, it, it sort of goes into what is a hobby, and that was like part of the manager training and stuff like that. And it's it's that you get really involved and you have niche conversations about the nuts and bolts and you talk about things that people on the outside wouldn't understand and that kind of thing. So I don't know whether perhaps part of what the magazine show is like that kind of concentration around... We're all at a level now. We all know certain things. So we're going to talk about the mechanics. Uh, and at the same time, there was kind of, as Baz has mentioned, like the white wolf thing that was kicking off and people getting into roles and characters and doing different things than dungeon bashing. So that's possibly why those two elements seem pronounced, is any talk about games would be, you know... Sort of um, an academic exercise, almost, or it would be about this kind of new branch of talking about playing a role in live action and things like that. Unless about did you have a good game last weekend, lads, or anything like that. Because the other aspect of magazines is they're not immediate. That you know you talk about something and then it's a month later before a letter gets published to rebut it or ask another question, and then a month after that before you get a response. So you can't really have those kind of easy conversations you can do on a Slack channel or a Discord or a Twitter sphere or something like that. You kind of got to look at it more as a. I'm really serious about this hobby, so I'm going to talk about this mechanic in a really, what might seem arrogant or a, you know, detached way, perhaps. I don't know. What do you think, Buzz?
1: I, I think all of that's true, mate. I, I kind of reflect on the games that were available as well. There were a lot of games available, but they they all looked like whoever had written them had been for seeing midnight showing of the crow on the way to there type. <laughs> so you have got all of the White Wolf games for a start. Um, which is a podcast of its own. Um, alongside that, as you mentioned in the film, game based on the occult, and, and kind of its, its USP was this is like real magic. You've got games like Cult with a K um, dropping as well, and a smaller press stuff like The Whispering Vault, um, Over the Edge, Unknown Armies. first time round. It's all a little bit David Lynch. Um, and, and I think... I think gamers tended towards the kind of like the goth lifestyle a little bit in the 90s as well. Whereas I don't know if there's a direct correlation, but, you know, when I started in the late 70s, early 80s, they were all into prog rock. And <laughs> you know, if you've got a Roger Dean poster on your, on your wall, you're probably a little bit more interested in colour, vibrancy and laughs than someone who's got like some black skull with a red candle stuck on the top of it. <laughs> I don't know. Can't back that up. But certainly the games that people were playing were a little bit, a little bit more cobwebby, and Call of Cthulhu was pretty strong in those in those years as well. So between all of that, and then things like Traveller, Traveller had blown up and had become the new era, which was you know just kind of nasty and grimy and dark, and and uh, and things were like you know coming to an end. Star Wars wasn't really knocking around at that sort of time to bring a bit of light and to the to the party. D and D was on its knees really, and was kind of scrabbling around in Planescape and Dark Sun, which is another like you know shadowy version of of the good old fun times. Uh, And people weren't smacking gelatinous cubes in corridors in the 90s. They just weren't at all. They were probably talking to them um, at length about the meaning of existence.
2: (laughs) And embracing them. (laughs) Or or actually playing one. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah,
1: maybe. I mean, there there was still some satire around to sort of leaven that. There was some fun to be had. Slay Industries is like a real cornerstone of 90s gaming and that that brought that sort of 2000 AD vibe to it you know a very scottish game could probably only have been produced by scots and um, and you had uh, other things as well like underground by ray winninger uh, which was a satire on uh, on um, superheroes and the american dream gone bad you know it was just that decade where everything had to be a bit postmodern uh, and it's difficult to smile when you're being postmodern
0: the only other things I can think of there seems to be like an edge as well of um, you had stuff like Castle Falkenstein or mm. Tales of and but they never really seemed to stick I don't think they seemed like good games where they, like, so they went in with the vibe of the rest of the decade to a great degree so there were people trying to produce the stuff I just don't think it was on brand
1: yeah yeah, that's fair that's fair I mean yeah a lot of the games were uh, people were coming out of the 80s where you know, they'd had their fun <laughs> <laughs> and gaming had become a teenager hadn't it by that point and, and gaming had become that kind of teenager that likes to drink cider in a graveyard and who doesn't <laughs> who hasn't done let's face it you know. so it was all getting a little bit more grown up and we had some very academic journals come out too things like um, I want to say interactive fiction I think it was, it was a, a not even a magazine it was like a quarterly thing that was kind of perfect bound and, and that treated role playing very seriously and and everybody was getting more serious about their hobby because the hobby was late teens by that point and had decided to get more mature, whatever that means. Um, and what it tended to mean was was katanas and trench coats in every game. All round, please, let's have some of that.
0: I think probably, and that's,
1: that's true in broad strokes, I think where your
0: fun comes from is stuff like Gen Con UK. So mm. For a UK market, there's always been a Gen Con in, in America, obviously. But we went to, you know, I think Canberra Sounds it was that originally I didn't make it to one of those but Burger and Loughborough University they were that's like a massive event this whole university campus given over to gaming and for four days and what it was every year you could turn up there and it's full of other gamers and it was all enclosed the real world wasn't there it wasn't allowed in and it was a real bubble that's kind of like where you met that's kind of where the fun was at if you know what I mean there's all kinds of events there was Crazy parties going on, there's like at least six different bars on site. There was Rocky Horror Picture Show conventions and live action things, and people dressing up, millions of games being run, all kinds of events and stuff. Um, but they were like, the, that's like a highlight of the year thing. That was like a, a real kind of, I don't know, it felt like, um, it's, it's a bit like 1830s, but for role playing nerds. Something, I don't know, it feels like a big, like massive release which was just completely different than the rest of gaming was. In, in the country and other smaller conventions and in, in village halls or things like
2: that mm. Mm. yeah the other thing I've picked up from looking at this issue of arcane and you've mentioned it previously about the collectible, collectible card game and there's a, an article in here the man who killed role playing Ooh. and it's in and it's a it's an interview with Richard Garfield yeah and uh, about uh, Magic the Gathering and whether he felt any sense of responsibility for killing off uh, <laughs> role-playing. <laughs> and and he, he he rightly says that, you know, this is just a, a period it's going through and it'll make it stronger. You know, it'll we'll come out the other side of this and uh, role-playing will get stronger and it'll come back um, replenished. And I suppose he was proven pro, pro, right. I also want to mention that um, in the What's Coming in 1996... You can see that the uh, collectible card game bandwagon is going because uh, Mythos is on its way from Call of mm. Cthulhu, Netrunner is on its way, Classic. and yeah, and Be- BattleTech and Shadowrun promise. So, FASA really going into the collectible card game. So, were you both Were you both part of that as well? Were you participating yeah. in the cards?
1: Yeah, I was. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean was?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have a deep freeze like Dirty did with the role playing games, I did it with card games, and then <laughs> then Netrunner came back out recently and I got back in again. Uh, yeah, card games were massive. Uh, as Baz alluded to earlier at Gen Con that I just mentioned, they were handing out alpha and beta decks uh, of magic just to try and get people to play it. So, just handing out decks of cards and we were throwing them all in the bin along with the leaflets and flyers and other stuff you get in your welcome pack. Thinking, oh, I don't want any of this rubbish, I'm a role player, I play games properly. And those packs now were worth like thousands of dollars, literally. Like, you know, I just t- to look back and cry. In fact, one of our old friends, Doug bless him, I doubt he listened, so I'll mention him by name, but I remember a particular time at Loughborough when there was a, a, like student accommodation, so there's two floors to it and the guys on top were like opening packs and throwing away all the commons, the ones they didn't need. So the the floor outside was just littered with cards. It was like confetti at a wedding and doug was just scrabbling around because he got new into card games and just like picking cards out of the mud and cleaning them off and stuff and it's like where's your self-respect man but <laughs> we sort of went to an event there and couldn't get in and it seemed a surprise because card games are quite new at that point and within a year or two it was like money was involved and you had to pay a reasonable amount of money to play them and there's prize money and it's just it just escalated and got bigger and bigger and bigger and it's one of those weird things that like magic exploded, and they're still now bigger than ever. They've sold, I don't know how many it is. There's some, something in one of the magazines I read about selling sort of 300 million cards or something, and they explain how great that is. And figures now it's like in the tens of billions of cards that have been sold for that game, and that's included the online stuff. So, mm-hmm. uh, a bit like when there was the D20 explosion for role playing, when the D20 open gaming license came out and people produced loads of games and a lot of rubbish. A similar thing happened for the card game industry. So you could get card games about just about anything because people just start producing. Going, oh well, there's, there's tons of money here for this, but not all games are equal. And you know, most of those games pretty quickly disappeared again, mm. because Richard Garfield made a really good game or two good games, including including Magic. Netrunners is obviously the first one. So there's, there's there's a limit to what's good and what's not, and that was that was uh, an indication of an industry jumping on a wagon because it's. And this is always the problem with role-playing games, is you don't sell many. And once the GM's got a copy, that'll do you for a few months while you play that with your mates for ages. Whereas cards, you can bring out every month and keep selling more and more packs to people. So we're in that weird place with uh, role-playing games that we've always been, that you don't sell that many units. And I think that's part of why the magazines have things like uh, adverts for miniatures or adverts for card games or card game listings, like all the cards in this set and things like that, which are at the time I was thinking, why do I want to know every individual card in the Ice Age set for Magic the Gathering? Why is that printed on three sides of my magazine about role-playing games? But that was the kind of content that, I guess, it was, it was big in the world around, so that's, that's why it was stuck in the magazine. I think I might have waffled there, I forgot your original question. but I think it's the ancillary stuff around role-playing games as well that was thought of part of the hobby in gaming. I don't think it was quite as integrated as it is in these days.
1: I played a lot of card games back in the day, and, um, and they were they were really cool, but there was definitely a sense... It wasn't even a sense. It was a fact. We went to an auction, didn't we, guys, at Gen Con? They used to do these charity auctions. Um, <laughs> we we went once, thinking it was going to be great, and it, it got quite tedious after <laughs> a while. It was like listening to a raffle at a pub you're not a regular of. Um, and uh, I, we saw people spend 80 £100 pounds on some magic binders Nothing else in them, just like binders, so that they could go and get them from the MC take them back to, back into the audience and rip them up in front of a baying crowd and and that was when eighty to hundred quid was a bunch of money as well mm. and and you would, you would go around the convention halls and, and magic would spread out it would take over entire floors, wouldn't it, to have its tournaments and and people would be you know cursing and spitting at the door saying so they couldn't get anywhere, couldn't do anything. And it definitely did feel like that in Gen Cons. You were either there to play in the big card tournaments or you were in the role-playing bit. And they never really met. Definitely sectioned off from each other. Which must have been what wargamers felt like when role-players showed up in the 70s. It must have been exactly the same. I'm sure it was. And, and there was loads of great card games that came out and, and, and I only ever really played the ones that supplemented my role-playing because I was quite sort of... Snobbish about it, I suppose. I played On the Edge, which was the over-the-edge card game, which was lovely, really good stuff. Did play Mythos for a bit. Um, enjoyed playing Mythos. That went badly wrong for KSEM, I think. Mm-hmm. There were printing issues, amongst other things. Um, and, you know, did really, didn't do well for that company at all. But those companies who could ride that card wave and you had to be in early, it's all sort of like the digital bubble, I suppose, wasn't it? They did very well. Shadow Fist for Feng Shui. Uh, or Feng Shui for Shadow Fist. not sure which way around it yeah, was around, but they yeah. were they were very very closely connected Netrunner of course was attached to Cyberpunk which I guess we forget now now that it's been through its FFG years and, and into a a different universe but it was part of the the Cyberpunk um, game which was another game that was big in the 90s I'd forgotten about that uh, Cyberpunk Cyber Generation Cyber Generation set in 2020 <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: well, along with I the I Cyberpunk 2020 to. as well yeah
1: yeah, exactly, so um, so the card games was huge, and it, and it massively benefited the hobby, but only in hindsight, because if it hadn't been for Magic, Wizards of the Coast wouldn't be a thing, and if it weren't for Wizards of the Coast, would there be a and d Would there? I, I don't know that there would. Hmm. Uh, there probably would, but nothing like in the fashion that we have now, because third edition landed right at the end of the 90s. I think Sport bought, bought TSR in 97, something like that, and spent three years getting third edition organised. So that period of the '90s was was being the role playing games that you asked about before. Though they, I think that was massively shrinking. Card games probably blew it back up again, and gave it the life support it needed to get to third edition D anD D, and then all bets were off.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. One of the articles I saw in the one of these magazines I was looking through was Dave Olsop, who was part of the Nightfall Games team. He did Slay Industries, which Wizard of the Coast bought, and he was going to Seattle to go and work at Wizard of the Coast because he was going to you know produce that game, but then has never happened, and lots of other games that Wizards bought didn't, just didn't go anywhere. Uh, you, you sort of part of that you wonder is is that Magic: The Gathering doing so well that the amount of the resources they just put into the card game because that was a license to print money, whereas role playing games were a lot of effort and time and resources and didn't produce as much money. So it's interesting. Well, it would be interesting to speak to some people who were there to find out that what the equation is around that. Uh, I think d and doing well now because of how popular it is and streaming and all that kind of stuff. But when you didn't have that back in the day, and it was just products you had to send to shelves, did a lot of games just get spiked because of how well card games are doing? I don't know. I'd, I'd like to get a guest on who knew, knows about that so we can plug them for information. So if you know anyone, listeners, or you are one, get in touch. <laughs> I
2: suppose the other um, prejudice I've got... Oh, oh, oh. Or the view I've got of the 90s. And I think this is probably associated with Vampire the Masquerade, which I've never played. For the reasons that you've discussed, That to me it just sounds really pompous. <laughs> I, I'm willing to be proven otherwise, but it just seems to me just something I wouldn't enjoy. But the other thing that seems related to that White Wolf is the proliferation of mediocre material. So <laughs> lots and lots of stuff produced for collectors or in, with, with, with new things. And you look at it and it's very flimsy. And I think that's reflected in these magazines as well, as you say. There's lots of reviews, but none of it is going to set the world on fire, is it?
1: No. No, it's not the the era of the splat book, they called it. It mm. got its own name, didn't it? I mean, we all bought into that to a degree because it was great because there was so much product coming out, it was like having a magazine. There was a regular drip, drip, drip. Um um regular listeners will know of my abiding love for earth dawn which is very much of that era uh, i bought everything for earth absolutely everything but earth i am prepared to admit is a niche game it was a niche game for Fassa and they published it compared to Shadowrun and the other BattleTech. and um when i stopped collecting earth dawn when it pretty much ran out of first edition it stretched at least four feet on a bookshelf the whole thing and that is just an that's a huge amount of material um, and I can't say I read every word. I don't think it's possible to have read every word. For a relatively niche game, Shadowrun would have delivered even more. D&D was delivering its second edition kits and everything else it went with, and box sets on such a regular basis that they drove themselves out of business by publishing games that were more expensive than they were charging for. So the, it, it was just get everything on printed however you can and stick it out there. And White Wolf became the absolute poster child for that. When they did their fifth game, Changeling, if you lined up all the spines, it produced a picture. Mm. Which, which is, so These things were designed to be read and owned much more than I think they were ever designed to be played necessarily, which was, mm. I think, damning in hindsight.
0: Well, me and Baz have always had this sort of thing where if you want to play a White Wolf game, like get the core book and play that, that's kind of what you should do. But obviously their successful model was... ...produce 37 bucks for each game... ...and then when you run out of ideas... ...finally for that... ...then produce a new game... ...and call it Something the Something... ...and produce another 37 bucks... ...and uh, yeah I mean... ...there's a lot of purple pros in those books... ...and I think Vampire as well had... Um, ...it seemed to do really well in the live action stuff as well... Um, ...there's a big scene for it for that... ...and that was a lot of people... ...as Baz has described... ...looking very gothy... ...hanging out in a backroom pub somewhere... ...where they rented a space pretending to be two hundred year old Zanisi who are above you and you have to speak to them in the correct term of the and I don't know. It just I've been to several of those events and it always feels like people who are socially awkward and don't know how to interact with people then trying to play a social game where people have to talk to them and they know what the structure is and who's above who and who gets to say what's it and it feels like I don't know a self help group for people who don't get out very much and you spend a lot of time in your bedrooms. <laughs> with crow posters on the wall and things like that um, and the role playing game could be a little bit like that but as Buzz said a White Wolf podcast is a whole other thing we could do the game itself always talked about being about character and not being about Dungeon bashing and all the rest of it it was really weird that the storyteller and storytelling system involved big D10 dice pools and lots of rules and like, there's that, that odd dichotomy I think it's why the live action did so well in the 90s was that you didn't have to deal with all the rules that came with it because they didn't help you play the narrative game that the game told you it was about. But yes, there's a certain element about being a, a powerful vampire of the night who can dominate people and
2: get them to do whatever you say and, and all that kind of stuff and be a bit kind of... Now you're selling it to me. Now you're selling it to me. Yeah. I'll come back and you uh, play Vampire of the Masquerade with me and uh, I'll join in and... <laughs> I've got a bit of a game for you because in uh, this issue of Arcane, I've got it's got a list of fanzines uh, that were uh, available at the time, and this is called the Stack Waddy game. And I know Buzz that you listen to Word in Your Ear podcast with Mark Allen and uh, Dave Hepworth, and they play this every time. And the idea is is that you got a band yeah, name,
1: yeah, love
2: it, yeah, it's it's great, isn't it? And uh, it's, you know, it's, what, what can go wrong with two old farts trying to remember stuff? I mean, it's a winning formula, I think. <laughs>
1: I wish I'd had
2: noticed I could have done a round of this. <laughs> <laughs> so a step wadi game, the idea is, is that um, picture, band name, and one of them's a ringer, and you've got to try and guess who, which is the ringer from the band names. So I've got this, and you can play this at home. So I've got 90s fanzines or lyrics by Sean Ryder, Little Holton's Finest, The Baggy Bard of Salford. So are you ready for this? Okay. <laughs> Longer, i to get more ready if we wait. Till so, longer.
1: what one of these <laughs> is a Sean Ryder lyric, is it? And the other, however many yeah, well, are legit, yeah.
2: fanzines. So, you're going to see whether it well, okay. let's see, let's see. Here we go. So, let's go with Life's Rich Pageant. Life's Rich Pageant is that a fanzine from the 90s or is that a lyric by Sean Ryder?
1: Oh, well, that that's um, that I, I'd be prepared to stake decent money on that being a fanzine. That's the name of an R.E.M. album, a very fine R.E.M. album, and I seem to remember that that was a fanzine as well.
0: I can almost picture some like Tudor-style black-and-white art with like a banner or something
2: fluttering. So, yeah, I've got to go fanzine. You're quite correct. It's a fanzine. It's a fanzine. Try this one, then. Sumo's Karaoke Club. Sumo's Karaoke Club. Is that a lyric by Sean Ryder, or is it? A fanzine from the 90s.
1: I feel like a lot hinges on the spelling of sumo. <laughs> Does it have a silent T on the front? No, 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 it's... A... <laughs> it's just the traditional, the, the vanilla way. Right? Yeah. Okay, default sumo then. Okay, and is club spelt with a K. Uh,
2: no, it isn't. It's a boat with a C.
0: <sighs> this feels like one that's probably a fanzine we meant to think it isn't I don't know I, I, that feels like a lyric to me I don't know
1: no, I'm, I'm going to go Ryder because I think if it were a fanzine typography suggests that you would you would say club with a K but if it's a lyric you would never write that down with a K won't.
2: It, it, you you're both wrong with that one it's, it is a fanzine uh, from uh, Mike Siggins and according to Arcane it says who's not afraid to print what he sees as the truth so that's <laughs> one to the fox I am <laughs> okay, what about this one then? Standing in the pews. Standing in the pews. Is that a Sean Ryder lyric, or is that a fanzine from the nineties? Standing in the pews. The pews. That sounds, sounds like a lyric pews to involved
1: me. Involved in gaming. Pews. People don't. People don't cross over between organized religion and role playing.
2: Sounds <laughs> a bit gothy to me.
1: It does sound a, a bit. Fun. Yeah, don't try and throw us off the scent with your <laughs> cadaverous <laughs> bon mots. That's uh, do you know what I could see that being a fancy, but it might be a fan. It'll be the kind of it'll have a white rose on the front. It'll be some kind (laughs) of like it will be some kind of vampire fancy, won't it?
2: I'm going to say a lyric anyway. Yeah, Uh, Gaz, you're right. It's uh, standing in the pews from Reverend Black Grape, of course. Yeah, (laughs) of
1: course.
2: We're not keeping scores until we've differentiated, and now I'm keeping scores.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I can see you with a pen in your hand as well. Uh, oh
2: dear okay and uh, last one okay one man's rubbish one man's rubbish is that a fanzine or is that a Sean Ryder lyric that oh, sounds God. like that could be a, a fanzine
1: uh, I'll go lyric you see I, I'm thinking I could hear the, the nasal drone
2: yeah it's uh, it, it's actually a fanzine so Gaz is right <sighs> so it's, it's not competition but Gaz wins
1: yeah. wow <laughs> wow I am absolutely apoplectic
0: at this. <laughs> that, it sounds like one of those things where you're looking at obscure games, perhaps, or things that people
2: don't. Yeah, it's a, P, it's a, P, it's a PBM um, magazine that also does reviews. Nice. There you go.
1: It also does reviews. Yeah. <laughs> of course it does. It was the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> that's all we had.
0: Yeah, that's another thing I noticed in the magazine. Lots of adverts were play-by-mel games as well, which were a thing. Which I did a little bit of, because it was it's something you get in between your magazines. You write off with instructions or orders quite often, and they were often like really basic Pascal computer programs or stuff or whatever. And you explored maps where there was just dots, and then you get little symbols if you found a city or a fort or a ruin or something, and occasionally bump into other people, and you could share letters with people to say we should team up and go and fight these other guys or something. So that was an odd thing, again that I guess. The Internet's completely blasting out of the water, but back in the day when you're in analog mode, you know, you could go in a magazine and think, I want to connect with some people, there's a play by mail game, I'll get involved with that and write some letters and chat to other gamers. The the length and breadth of England, all for the price of a second class stamp.
2: One thing, um, perhaps to bring it to a close, just to talk about these things as artifacts and what it tells us about uh, the 90s as you know I've started this uh, book club and the idea of this book club is that we're meeting up informally once a month um, to look at RPG books and uh, it's quite nice because at the moment we just need human contact don't we, it's a chance to talk about gaming but not playing games and we're not getting a lot of that opportunity with uh, with, uh, things not happening. So in the book club, we've been looking at The Elusive Shift, which is by John Peterson, and it's an academic study. It's produced by MIT Press. And he looked at the archive of um, fanzines of the 70s to track, to try and identify the moment where it moved from a war game to role-playing so when did people start to refer to it as a role-playing game rather than any anything else because D&D when it was first published didn't have role-playing game mentioned in it at all there's something happened when fans got hold of it and it met the science fiction community that it became role-playing uh, role-playing game and um, it got us thinking about now that these things are being studied and it is a hobby and it is a movement it's a it, it, it's something that's happened in society and culture should these magazines be kept somewhere a public repository so that future academics can refer to them because where would you go
1: mm. Mm. i think it, it's a really interesting point i think it depends on the magazine doesn't it there's an awful lot of uh there's a lot of uh, what's the word i'm looking for People are very passionate about Dragon Magazine, which I never was, for example. And Dragon would have continued all the way through that era. And I suppose there's a case to be made for, like, if you want to track the history of D&D, then the Dragon Magazine archive is probably the place to go. Um, White Dwarf certainly would have been, you know, our touchstone for 80s gaming. 90s gaming, difficult thing to suggest. I mean, my, my copies of Valkyrie magazine, I've got issue one, in front of me here, I've only, it's only just struck me it says independent role playing across the top of it in quite big letters. So, what were they trying to say there? I think they were trying to say they weren't White Dwarf, because by that time, White Dwarf had more than merged in, well, morphed into its miniatures catalogue kind of era. It was you know, very little to do with role playing anymore at that point. So, role playing had just atomized in the 90s anyway. As you rightly point out, there's an awful lot of fanzines kicking around. There was an awful lot of these magazines kicking around. There was this, there was Arcane, there was The Last Province, Adventures Unlimited, GM International, Roleplayer Independent. That's half a dozen without even having to scratch my head too much. Where would you go to to find out what the what the culture was like? They, they these were prose I think, and they were indicative of like what was going on in gaming. But they are, looking at just the massive amount of views in there, they're more like a product catalogue than anything you could have accused Games Workshop's White Dwarf of being. They are simply a rundown of everything that was released, which was quite a lot of it, and people's views on it. And content? There's not much there, is there? You could go back to any issue of White Dwarf and the classic days, and you'd want to run them at meat. I'm not picking any scenarios from my Valkyrie collection, and it is a collection I've held with me all this time, I will never part with it. I'm very, very affectionate towards it. But it doesn't bear rereading. I don't know what it tells me about the 90s, apart from it was longer ago than I thought.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of those magazines now look like they were desperate for content. I think it goes to what you were saying earlier about, you know, if you could write some words on a page, then you could get published because it was that easy. And I think that's, it doesn't feel like uh, something you want to collate in a library. As being, you know, top quality necessarily or a zeitgeist of the times, it felt like a collection of what they could get hold of. Mm. Certainly, looking at Valkyrie and stuff, a lot of the scenarios they have in there were for games that they'd recently reviewed or someone had advertised quite a lot. I think that was not, I don't think that was um, like a shill move or anything like that. I think it was just that those people, producers, would then provide some content that the magazine could publish and they were grateful for it. And you notice it says things like, as you go through the issues, like, oh, sorry, sorry, we've been late the last couple of issues, but we're going to try and be a bit quicker next time. We're just a bit busy. And you, you, you do get the feeling that it's not, it's it's a labour to bring it out rather than, as you said, like the original White Dwarfs and stuff like that were just packed with stuff and they were not short of ideas and a professional team behind it. So, will zines and this sort of stuff get archived away? Do we need to keep them? I'm not sure we do. I'm not sure it's there's enough there, it's, it's very niche, and I'm not sure about the gold that you find in them, and that can be the thing, like quite often you find with role playing books don't you, you might buy, um, I don't know, one of the White Wolf catalogue of books and stuff, But and the will bits you can pick out of it, even if you don't want to read all 96 pages, there might be half a dozen pages that give you something good and you feel like it's worth the investment at that point, I'm not sure that this these written words provide you with the same quality of information even.
1: I think the uh, the archive of the 90s is made up of its games.
2: Hmm. Once you get beyond uh, the 90s, of course, people moved to uh, the internet to have the discussions. So the letters page were interchanged on Usenet groups and on the internet. I suppose the difficulty with that as an archive is that it's subject to the capricious nature of uh, tech companies. So Google Plus went, uh, Yahoo Groups, is a place where people would have uh, exchanged ideas and collected ideas—that's going. So, at least for me, as uh, somebody's trying to explore the nineties, I've got something to refer to mm. when it comes to the noughties and uh, the teens. That period—where you know, where will we find what was going on uh, in, in the heart of the hobby amongst the players? Then, I have to come to podcasts, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah, okay. you will. You will. Cause it, it's flimsy, you're right, isn't it? It's really flimsy when you think about it. UK Role Players was a forum that Gaz and I frequented a lot in recent years, gone and you know wiped out and uh, uh, our mutual friend Mike Mason ran a social network for a little while called Ning. You remember that one, Gaz Yeah it was like <laughs> it was like, build your own Facebook. There's only about four of us on it. But I tell you what, I pumped thousands of words into it. I'd like to have them back, <laughs> and that was, you know, that was me, Gaz, and Paul Fricker discussing the state of the hobby in the very early noughties, I suppose wasn't it? Mm-hmm. We haven't changed our opinions much. You can just ask us. To be honest, We're, we'll tell you what we think now. But um, at least, yeah, you have got you have got the magazines, which is like the newspapers of the day, and and I think that that's the difference with the magazines of the '90s. Those artifacts are there. Um, and the fanzines too but they are they do feel a bit like newspapers as in this is what is current right now but they feel as disposable as a newspaper there's 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 astonishingly few interviews in there for example that I didn't see an awful lot of like comment and opinion from the people who are actually making stuff they were too busy making it I think I think the the artifacts of the 90s are those games themselves and those supplements which have just been astonishingly well supported on Kickstarter 20 years later. You know, all of those games of the 90s, your Feng Shui, your over the edge, the Unknown Armies have all come back everway with massive kickstarters because people really wanted to get behind those games again. And thank goodness their creators are still around to bring it back and talk about it. You get more talk about Everway now than you ever would have got back in the day. I just I just didn't see that stuff represented in print. So I don't think I don't think necessarily the magazines that I flick through are a fantastic archive. Apart from the adverts for shops long gone, it was the time of the friendly local game store. There were millions of them because Magic kept them afloat. I think. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> there was game shops everywhere, so you know you can tell a lot about it from reading between the articles. I would say. Yeah, I, I think.
0: I mean, we've been quite um, tongue in cheek about podcasts, but I think that that's where it's at. If you if you certainly look at. The guests that you've had on, if you consider people like Kent Andre or Liz Danforth, we've spoken to Jonathan Tweet about Everway, for example, but like plenty of other people, like Lee Prosperi for Earthdawn, or you know any number of people from back in the day, various designers of iterations of D and D, and those records are, are on the internet now. People can look back and listen to them. But that gives you a much better idea of what was going on in the '90s from the design point of view and what people thought about the games, what they were trying to achieve, than looking the magazines would. But uh, yeah, there's definitely a lot of words that go on the internet that then get lost. Uh, I know at the time G Plus was going to go, which was months in the doing. You know, Google did say, hey, we're going to remove this on this date, and there was plenty of time to archive stuff off. And a lot of certainly the OSR community and those sort of people were all like, oh, what are we going to do with this great content? We need to do something with it. And by and large didn't. Some bits went on blogs. A lot of it went down the, the internet plug hole. So you've perhaps got to ask how important was it? if it was really very good, if there was actually that gold out there that people said, why is it not recorded somewhere? Why is it not in a book now? Why is it, you know, I don't know. Perhaps people get just attached to clutter and don't want to get rid of it. But I think the really important bits, the the exciting stories, the design intents, all that kind of stuff, we've, in our respective podcasts and others, we're making a good archive of that by speaking to the primary resources, the people that wrote this stuff and designed it and, you know, getting their thoughts and and, and Deeds down the line, and then of course, because we're old, we we go back and play old games, and we're in the Pendragon campaign at the minute and stuff like that. That's how do you keep something alive? Well, you keep playing it, don't you? Slay Industries, for example, was dead for a long time, but uh, Max Bantleman with his was it Chocolate Frog Enterprises or Crunchy Frog Enterprises like that? He did a fanzine, and that kept that game alive, even though Wizards dropped it like a hot potato. Games are kept alive, and that what happened, and what's going to happen, by the playing of and the talking about it by people there, rather than written words in periodicals. I would suggest.
1: Hmm. So, what do you think? Then, uh, do you feel like you've missed out on the nineties, particularly, or you're happy to leave that little lacuna in your gaming history?
2: Um, I still think I, I'm not. Some of these games that you've mentioned, I've never played. I've not played uh, Over the Edge. Not played uh, vampires as I mentioned and I listen to your podcasts and it, it kind of excites me but I need to get a game to understand what you got out of it you know what you know mm. to, to get that experience Am I'm glad I mixed well during the uh, during the 90s I was mainly experimenting with lager I think um so uh, <laughs> you know I think I had a good time so I'm I'm I've no regrets of uh, not gaming I don't think it was good to come back to hmm.
0: Well, I can definitely run some vampire for you and various other games. So we'll have to sort that out. Yeah. Uh, And I hope you're back to bitter now, and you've got rid of of your uh, logger obsession. Yeah, it was.
2: It was a thing in the '90s, wasn't it? I've noticed one thing about uh, Valkyrie. Uh, Fancy having the brass neck to have a tagline that says the UK's premier role-playing games magazine. What kind (laughs) of? I don't. I
0: can't even conceive the hubris of someone (laughs) that would sell from in such a way.
1: You've only got to look at the contributors. <laughs> the <Spencer> itself. <laughs> Not quite my first published work, but there's plenty of it in there. Unfortunately,
0: <laughs> I feel we've been a bit—or certainly I've been a bit down about it all. But as I say, I had to reiterate. I suppose it was a lifeline. You know, when when there was no internet, and if you couldn't get to many conventions, because certainly at that time we didn't have a lot of money. Like it was that was your fix. That was you know like once a month you could go down to your magazine agent and get that and get some gaming content, no matter how weak I might now consider it or whatever, or or perhaps don't, the rose tinted glasses aren't quite there anymore. But it was great at the time. You pour over it. You read every word because that was that was all there was. You couldn't get anything else. So yeah. it was uh, it was gaming crack for its time.
1: Me too, mate. I, I adore magazines. I have spent more money on magazines about subjects than I have on the subjects themselves. I dare say I've spent more money on music magazines than I have on music and that, that would take some doing, but I think it's I think I probably have. And I do tend to get slightly obsessed with hobbies. And and those this was the glory years of of magazines being available and being available readily as well. You didn't have to do subscriptions or anything else like that. And uh, and if I saw these things pop up, and with Valkyrie you never knew when it was gonna pop up, to be fair. It it would sometimes go AWOL for two, three, four months at a time and then pop back. Um, and we haven't even gone into the storied history of, of how it gone in its later years. We've just looked at that one year in the middle, um, but it's notable that it took like three years for ten issues to come out for a monthly <laughs> magazine. There's <a laughs> some going, um, <laughs> and it had the sheer hubris to put volume one on the first bit. Yeah. But anyway, I loved seeing them when they popped up in the news racks. That was that was good times indeed, and I would read every single word, just like I did with White Dwarf, including the adverts, including the credits page, including the legalese underneath the masthead, all of that stuff was there. Uh, I would absolutely devour every bit of it. Whether I wanted to play those games or not, I would look at the miniatures section or the the net, the features. I would absolutely devour them um, and learn all of the names of, of all, every contributor and so on. And And it's always been a slight obsession that I do love magazines. And I miss them. I miss them terribly. I think scrolling through my smartphone is, is what I do instead of a magazine now. And I, I think I'd rather have the magazine, thanks. And I think we've all dabbled with getting stuff into into print on you know on a proper piece of paper with a staple in it because I just don't think it can be beaten mm. it's it's the format of the future and the past
0: yeah it is interesting with kids getting into retro stuff like vinyl records and all the rest of it if there will be a bit of a market for a periodical because mm. uh, there was yeah I mean recently there's been a in magazines and things like that and that might be the way it happens now and it might be quarterly but you' pay you pay up front so that because that, that was always the problem with it, the role-playing distribution model and the magazine model is that you had to print a lot of stuff and then hope people would buy enough of it to make it worthwhile and you didn't go bust. So maybe a Kickstarter is the way that we get printed word done again of some form because you can then make sure you're not going to put yourself out of business or your mortgage on the line by producing something.
1: Yeah, fair point. Mm. Who knows if we'll ever see their like again. I, I suspect we won't and certainly not in the way that we did back then. Uh, I think that time has probably passed uh, there is a, there are other ways in other media, um, but it's it certainly it was the, the last big hurrah for the for the published magazine. I think was in the nineties there, and um, and they kind of went out with a bit of a bang, didn't they? I mean, Arcane was you know I've, I've, I don't I didn't keep my Arcane magazines, but there's no way they wouldn't have been published if they weren't making a profit, and they would have sold, I'm guessing tens maybe hundreds of thousands of those every time they came out, and they dropped as regular as clockwork, um, and that, that's that's those kind of figures. Would you get those now? No, I don't think you would. I just don't think that market exists anymore. So maybe it's back to fanzines then, back to small press, where where, where it all started.
0: <laughs> and thankfully for patrons of our good show, you can now get our monthly little zenia that we drop in. And uh, if there's anything you'd like to see in there, dear listeners, after all these discussions, let us know, because we're, we're happy to put some content in there for you. But much like wondering what should go in a magazine, apart from reviews, we don't know what you might want, so do let us know if you've got an opinion, and we'll, we shall uh, endeavour to give you some words of our wisdom. How about you, Doug You you actually produce a lot of fanzine for your guys, don't you? Every is it every every year?
2: Yeah, every every year. We we've um, we've skipped a year uh, for reasons, but um, yeah, COVID. Blame it on COVID. Yeah. yeah, yeah, COVID. That's what everybody says, isn't it? Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, there's, there's nothing better. It's, it, it's like Baz says, there's nothing better than a, a magazine. And like him, my garage is full of Mojo Q magazines. Uh, every, I, I, I devour them. Um, and that's part of, uh, you know, this obsession of trying to collect these. I, I don't want to say a collection. It's more of an accumulation of uh, stuff from the 90s, uh, from gaming, just to uh, piece, piece things together. But, yeah, there's nothing better than making, a handmade uh, magazine, fanzine, and, and I've done it all my life uh, making fanzines, and there's a, there's a unique pleasure to producing it and having it in your hand and circulating it to uh, small groups of people and get and the feedback. You hope you get the feedback. You Very rarely do, mm. but it, you get you put it out there, and there's the, the, it's I suppose it comes back to that thing of uh, crafting, isn't it? That it feels. Mm more produced when a a, a magazine than said something like this, a a podcast, you know, it's got your hands all over it. Every little bit of it. Mm. Yeah.
1: And the permanency that goes with it too. Mm. (laughs) You better stand by what you wrote because it's still there. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely.
0: Yeah. You can't delete it. Excellent. Well, thanks very much guys. I think we're, uh, we're coming up to time. So I'll also say thank you to our uh, most recent patrons, Laurie, Anthony, James, Martin, and Panicked Sheep, whoever you may be. I'm glad that, despite your fear of the Big Bad Wolf, you've managed to throw a few shekels our way to keep the podcast going. That's great. Uh, thanks very much to you, Dirk, for coming on and, and sharing your thoughts. How can people get hold of you if they want to find out more about The Grognard Files?
2: Um, we're on thegrognardfiles.com, or you can follow me on Twitter, at File, And uh, look out for the at the RPG librarian, to see if I managed to find 365 things in my house to photograph.
0: (laughs) Wonderful stuff. And, of course, thanks to you, Baz. How do they find you on Twitter if they want to get hold of you?
1: Me? Oh, God knows what am I called on Twitter I think it's at Baz Stevens is, right, probably yeah. I just genuinely do not know <laughs> everybody talks to me via your Twitter account anyway I think they think we live in the same house and just stare at the same screen well i Ernie or something
0: in the pyjamas in the same bed it's a bit bizarre but there you go all right
1: I have a little sub niche of people who only talk to me on Twitter and I don't talk to you but believe you me it's a sub niche
0: <laughs> I'll get them eventually I'll get to them okay well th- thank you all dear listeners I hope you enjoyed our show today and we shall see you next time on what would the smart party do